Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Junior Podcast. I'm Delia Gold and I'm here with the esteemed Leanne McLean. Hey, great to be here. Great to be here. We're going to pour one out for our boy, Russ Horowitz, who couldn't come today. We'll get his thoughts on the next one. But today we're talking about a really awesome article about gastric ultrasound, and it is entitled Point of Care Ultrasound to Assess Gastric Content in the Pediatric Emergency Department Procedural Sedation Patients. It's a recent publication in Pediatric Emergency Care in January of 2022. This article is really interesting to me. I'm really glad that we get a chance to share it with you guys, because I think we can all agree that in a pediatric emergency medicine, sedation, and getting our patients prepped to have the most successful procedure as well as good time while they're dealing with whatever horrible thing brought them into our departments. It's a thing we spend a lot of our time doing. And so procedural sedation and analgesia, it's a tool in our toolbox we actively always try to improve on. And this article is really focusing on something that slows down the flow sometimes of our sedation, which is NPO status. We know that procedural sedation and analgesia is commonly performed in our ERs to aid with patient cooperation and pain management. Similar to when you do general anesthesia, the meds that are used for this can cause relaxation of protective airway reflexes and all that stuff that leads to increased risk of aspiration and gastric contents, which nobody wants. And even though we know by prior studies and large meta-analysis that this is a pretty rare event, it obviously carries serious morbidity and mortality, so we don't want to mess with it. So to mitigate this, there's a lot of society guidelines regarding MPO status with the most restrictive being from our friends over in anesthesia, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, who recommend that there's an eight-hour solid NPO time and two-hour for liquid NPO time prior to any kind of procedure. And for their definition, they include sedation as well on top of general anesthesia, like OR time. Alternatively, you know, for the people who are practicing primarily in emergency departments, so like the American College of Emergency Physicians and AAP even, their general recommendation more recently with their policy statements was to not delay procedural sedation in the ED based on reported fasting time. And we can all understand why that might be. Fasting time is notoriously up to the memory of the parent who's gone through a pretty stressful thing with their child or the kid themselves is giving us MPO time and accuracy can be difficult. We also know that there's some slowing that can happen with injuries, but we rely on the fasting time, but that can slow our flow in the ER and we don't know if we really need to do that. And a lot of us clinically don't wait the eight hours. It's different in different shops. This paper is really interesting because I think they're taking that question into mind and know that there's all these different recommendations about MPO time for sedation. They use a known model that was created by our anesthesia colleagues, Dr. Perlas, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. And this model of anesthesia risk stratification uses point of care ultrasound at the bedside to see gastric contents and evaluate how at risk their stomach contents are. So if it's like basically a big old burger swirling around the stomach looking at you when you're looking at it on ultrasound, that person is going to be obviously at higher risk than when you see a a collapsed antrum. And there's really set of formulas that are specific to pediatrics to figure that out. And we're going to add that to our website. This is what they did in this study using Perlos's model of anesthesia risk stratification to assess gastric content of pediatric patients at the time of sedation and describe how the stomach content actually changed over time using this model. So the 
the question for this paper is what is the gastric content of pediatric patients at the time of procedural sedation by the Perlos model for gastric ultrasound? And how does this gastric content change over time while awaiting sedation initiation in the ER? So this was a single pediatric academic center in the United States. All of the scans were done by the PI. So it's actually as well a single provider for who was doing all of the scanning. The inclusion criteria are pretty similar to the inclusion criteria we think about for sort of our standard low-risk sedation, so ASA status of one through three, and also a little bit older than the youngest patient, so greater than six months of age. They excluded known anatomical issues or difficulties tolerating the ultrasound or those who were critically ill. So it was a prospective observational study, and it was a convenient sample done as it was a single scanner who was performing all of these ultrasounds. They performed a brief history, but in addition, looked at the timed planning of the sedation and then any delays with concerns over NPO time. They tried to do serial ultrasounds in those who had longer wait for their sedation time slot so that they could better establish sort of the changes in that gastric emptying over that time. The treating team was blinded to all of the POCUS results. And as I said, it's a pretty simple model that had already been described using a low frequency curvilinear or a linear transducer. So in terms of the data analysis, they used both descriptive statistics and categorical variables as well as continuous variables to describe their data. They tried to look at the predictability of fasting duration, which I think is really important because when we think about those of us who are still using time as a prediction for gastric emptying, we're assuming the longer we wait, the more empty the stomach is. And I think that it's really great when we can actually physically look at the gastric measurements. The POCUS images as well, they mentioned, were independently evaluated by two additional experts to look for interrater agreement for gastric content interpretation. The scan itself we won't describe, but there is a technique that is described very well in the paper using two different positions of the patient and one to two transducers, looking at the presence or absence of contents in the gastrum and then actually measuring that to estimate volume. So why don't we get to the results? So for the total number of screened patients, they had 101, were able to complete scans on 92 of these. Some people dropped out for not being interested in doing that that day on their very sad day in the ER or unable to tolerate the positioning. So 92 patients were able to do the qualitative exam. At the time of scanning, there were two patients that were deemed low risk. 73 patients was deemed high risk with solid, liquid, thick material, basically your hamburger floating around in your stomach. Those people we kind of know what to do with, but the middle ground is where you then apply the volume determination. So there were 13 in the suggest low risk category and four in the suggest high risk category. The study authors then proceeded with the volume determination to kind of get a better clarification. They use that because between 0.8 and 1.5 mLs per kilo, that is what the stomach volume was seen in patients that had been fully NPO for eight hours in prior anesthesia studies. Using that as a benchmark, of those 17 patients, they saw that 17 had less than 1.25 mLs per kilo and were in the suggest low-risk category, whereas zero were in the suggest high-risk category. The overall population was mostly male because males like to jump off of things and break their arm. JK, I did it too. Mean ages of 6.5 years, 
ASA class one was 100%. Almost half of the patients had received narcotics prior to the sedation. And I think we all know that's very realistic, if not an underestimate of what happens. The patients, the kids are crying. They're really upset. Roughly 40% of patients were considered fasting by the ASA guidelines at the time of their sedation with medium fasting times of about 6.25 hours for solids and almost six hours for liquids. The most common indication for the sedation was orthopedic injuries at about 60%. And for sedation, all providers used ketamine alone, which was about three quarters of them, or ketamine plus propofol, which was the last quarter. Primary outcome was how many patients are classified as high risk due to the presence of solid content. And in this study, 79.3% of patients were classified in that category with the median fasting time of 6.25 hours for solids. With regards to secondary outcomes that they were looking at, they asked a really important question, I, I think, which is is how many of the patients in the study had delayed sedation due to provider concerns over NPO timing. This isn't specific at all to ultrasound, but it is very specific to what we all deal with in our emergency departments. And with those 15 that were delayed, they also, not surprisingly, had an overall longer median length of stay versus those who did not. Now, it was only about a 30-minute difference. However, I think especially with the volumes that people can see at different times due to respiratory viruses and trauma, 30 minutes does make a difference. Of these patients that did have delayed PSA due to the concerns for NPO time, about 86% had high-risk gastric content on POCUS. Another thing about this study that actually made it different than prior studies is that they took those 17 patients that were neither high-risk or low-risk on initial assessment, and they did kind of like serial ultrasound exams, which I think is something that is always great to look at, particularly with the argument that POCUS really is a clinical tool and what makes the strength of it is that we can do it at any time and we can repeat the exam. So for those 17 that they did serial POCUS studies to evaluate the contents, they did a AUC looking at the amount of decrease in the odds of being characterized as high risk based on a per hour of solid fasting duration. And so when they looked at the results, they had a one hour increase in solid fasting duration with a 14% decrease in the odds of being characterized as high risk. So fasting duration had a weak to moderate ability to predict risk category with an AUC of 0.73, an area under the curve of 0.73, and despite some decrease in gastric content appreciated over serial exams, actually no patient had a transition in gastric content from high risk to low risk, despite these being watched repeatedly, even though four patients actually had transitioned from ASA classification of non-fasting to fasting during this time frame. I think that's a really important point because basically you have a person that you're sitting there and making them wait or they are waiting. You have a person that is waiting due to fasting time or due to the busyness of the department. This study allowed to objectively look at what was going on in their stomach at that time. And despite these patients crossing the threshold into now being fasting by ASA guidelines, their stomach really didn't show any difference. And that is a really, I think, important point for us to talk about in the discussion. So strengths of this study, always love a prospective study. It's hard to do that. So we're going to give a major shout out for anything that's prospective, especially with a clinical study. It lends support to the growing body of literature about gastric POCUS in the pediatric ED and its ramifications regarding suggested MPO status for procedural sedation. As I mentioned, there is no prior published studies on serial evaluations of gastric content in the PZD, and the treating clinicians were blinded to all POCUS results, which kind of underlines that point that people were still concerned and delaying the sedation due to MPO status, and they weren't even aware that they had very full stomachs on ultrasound. So there's a lot to 
to unpack there. And it also assessed inter-rater reliability on imaging interpretation using different POCUS experts as well as radiology. What do you think some limitations are, Leanne? The limitations that we can sort of see is that really it's a convenient sample in a single institution and a single expert scanner. In terms of the sample size, they didn't meet their enrollment goal due to the decrease in their sedation volumes during the time. And I think that the real limitation to me is sort of where do I see the applicability of this sort of scan within our divisions? And I think that one of the things that's really interesting to me is thinking about this article and this whole conversation in the context of what your current practice is. So my current practice is to follow the emergency guidelines and I don't tend to wait for any NPO status with sedations. Now, granted, we have a busy department. It takes some time for a sedation to happen anyway. So these children are already waiting, but their intake status is not going to determine their order of sedation for me. Fasting duration had a weak to moderate ability to predict their risk category, meaning that those people who were fasting still had full stomachs. And that to me just re-emphasizes what we sort of already know in the emergency literature, which is that it probably doesn't make a ton of difference in what we're doing. Now, I'll say that with another caveat, which is that we're using ketamine for most of our sedations. So we're not doing a full muscle relaxation the way you might be doing if you were doing propofol and fentanyl, for example, or if you were doing a more significant sedation of a longer duration. Many of our sedations are relatively brief and they're usually single agent with ketamine. And so in choosing our medications and in choosing our patient population, we may be seeing different results from our anesthesia colleagues who do much more complex sedations for different reasons. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We use primarily ketamine as well. And I follow the guidelines of just, you know, procedural sedation is going to happen regardless of NPO status. Totally agree that they end up waiting because of, you know, various other situations like waiting in the lobby or they are hard stick and we can't get an IV. And so it's not an instantaneous thing. However, what I always love about point of care ultrasound is that it is, to me, it's still clinical. It's always clinical. If you don't use it as a clinical tool, then we're using it more as a radiologist. And I love radiologists, but for me, that's not how I need it. And this, just the design even of the study, I think highlights that because they know, these authors are PEM physicians. They know what the guidelines say. They are choosing to create a study and use point of care to reinforce the clinical rules that we should be applying anyway. So if there are people who are in a position where they, they don't feel comfortable or they don't know if they should go ahead and proceed. A recent study on gastric ultrasound as well as this one both demonstrated that there is high risk content in the patients at the time of sedation. It's around 80% for both. So A, we have a consistency between two studies, but also I can consistently say everyone's stomach is full when I'm getting ready for the sedation. And we know from even bigger studies that there are not bad outcomes. The rate of aspiration is incredibly low. In this article, they had zero known aspirations as well as the other recent gastric ultrasound articles. So to me, it just gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside when point of care ultrasound can actually be used to reinforce some guidelines that aren't even based on ultrasound. It's just, it's a synergy. And if you guys could see me, I'm doing the hands. I love it. It helps teach as well. I don't know for you, Leanne, but I love when I'm teaching my fellows that I remind them that they're still clinical physicians and that is how they're applying ultrasound. So they can know all the data, but this paper really melts the two in a way that is great. And that's why we, we wanted to talk about it. The other thing that I think that they can move forward to, you know, Leanne mentioned that it's really good for community environments and anesthesia. And even I think there's critical care opportunities that this could be used for. But also there could be studies looking at if there's a relationship between like gastric contents and even
even just vomiting. So we don't have to talk about aspiration. We don't have to say the big bad word aspiration, but just even like certain types of contents or certain volumes of contents is it going to increase vomiting in like the recovery period. They didn't really get into that on this article much, but the majority of the kids who did vomit, of which I think there was only like three or four, they did have high risk content. But again, I will underline no aspiration events and no clinical issues that they were able to pick up in the study. So Leanne, do you do gastric ultrasound? What do you think? Does this study make you want to do it? How would you apply it? So I have to say that it's something that I've tried to do. I was really inspired by some of our University of Toronto colleagues in anesthesia when they first presented this a few years ago, because I thought it was just such a neat application for point of care ultrasound. But I don't use it clinically in my practice because I I really do follow the recommendations from the emergency and pediatric associations. And so I tend not to do it in my practice, although definitely I think there's huge potential there. And I think that the potential not only from a research perspective to reinforce what we already know, but even the shared decision making around patients that we're going to be transferring to anesthesia, if if they keep on doing it and they see value in it from an emergent OR perspective, we can certainly share in that information acquisition with them. And I think that it can help a lot of people in in that way, but it's not one that I would say I, I do every shift or even every month. Yeah, I agree. I don't do it, but I think there are definitely ways that we could apply it for different specific patient populations or to kind of help across the care model of once the patient enters our doors, it's everybody's patient. So we can help down the line for sure. So summary of this article, this paper, it was a prospective study of 92 patients being evaluated by gastric pocus to determine stomach content in the setting of intravenous procedural sedation and analgesia. Almost 80% were found to have high-risk gastric content based on the PERLAS model, even those meeting ASA fasting guidelines prior to the procedure. There was no clinically significant change in gastric volumes by serial POCUS examination, and the incidence of emesis post-sedation was on par with prior reported studies. Other take-home points, over 60% of these patients who were considered fasting by the American Society of Anesthesia strict NPO guidelines had high-risk gastric content, indicating that fasting time is a poor prognosticator of low-risk gastric content in the PEDS emergency department. Both of these estimates of the 80% with high-risk content and over 60% still having high-risk content after waiting the eight hours are on par with prior literature on gastric pocus in the PZD. More studies are needed to determine if there is a link between high-risk gastric content and post-procedural emesis and the safety of proceeding with sedation irrespective of NPO status in the PZD, balancing risk factors, urgency, and planned medications. So Leanne, it was so great hanging out with you today. I miss my boy Russ, but we'll get him back. And for all you scanners out there, I hope this was a useful podcast and that you're keeping your head up in your emergency departments. I just want to say, please feel free to weigh in on Twitter and let us know, do you still hold patients for an NPO status? Do you wait a few hours? What's your practice in your emergency department? Read more about this podcast and others on ultrasoundgel.org. Happy scanning. More, 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 more,